few weeks ago, I received a request to speak on the distinctive marks of the church. I've been thinking about preaching on this again after not having done so for quite some time. And you recognize that every year or two, there's a young person who's sitting in the audience who is just now hearing for the first time and grasping and understanding what it really means to be a member of the church of Christ. We also have visitors with us. Some of you bring your neighbors and your friends. We had visitors this morning. Many times people come and they don't even know the important nature and the facts with regards to the church. So tonight and next Sunday evening, Lord willing, we're going to talk about some distinctive marks of the church. To say something is distinctive says that it has a characteristic of one person or thing and so serving to distinguish it from others. And particularly if you think about things like cars or people, there's some characteristics that make them unique. For just a moment, humor me if you will to think about some things that you will recognize because they're distinctive. The first one I have used a number of times, and I'm thankful to Brother Leonard. Several years ago, he had a 57 Chevrolet. And that's a perfect illustration when you ask somebody, particularly in a Bible study, I'll use this and I'll say, uh, you know, I want to start with and say, do you know what this is a picture of? And if they're car people, they will say, that's a 57 Chevrolet. And then I'll ask the question, how do you know that it's a 57 Chevrolet? Usually if it's a woman, what she's going to say, well, right there on the front of the hood, it says Chevrolet. That's let you know what it is. But usually the men will point out that, well, you'll see the bullets on the hood. There's the distinctive fins that are on the rear quarter panels. Oh, that lets you know that it's a 57 Chevrolet. Or maybe a a car that uh, I had when I was... About 20 years old, a 65 Mustang. Very unique, distinct looking car. And if you've ever had one or ever wanted one, you know exactly what they look like when you see them. But it's not just cars, it's also people. If I were to put that picture on the screen and you look at it, you know immediately that that's Abraham Lincoln. Maybe you've seen his picture on $5 bills, or if you're more like me, you've seen it on the penny. But you recognize that uh, he's a very distinctive person, has a distinctive look. There's others. uh, If you were to see that person, I dare say that practically everybody in the audience knows who that person is because he has a distinctive look about him. But now, again, let me imagine here that one of our children is missing. And I'm going to use a fictitious child. I I'd actually thought about bringing one of the little children up here, but I decided not to embarrass anybody or or maybe even embarrass myself. But you imagine one of our little children is missing, and you start out and you say, his name is Rusty. And uh, Rusty, his hair is red. That's why we named him Rusty. And uh, his eyes are blue. He's wearing blue jean overalls. He's about two years of age, and you start saying, okay, I think I could recognize that boy. But then you say, let me give you a picture of him. And here's Rusty. Do you think that you could find Rusty if he were lost here in our building? 
I dare say that if you walked in and you saw a little boy wearing uh, blue jean overalls, you'd say, he's got red hair, that's him. And then if you say, Rusty, your parents are looking for you, here comes Rusty. On the other hand, if you walk in and it's not a little boy, but it's a little girl and she's wearing a pair of overalls, no, that can't be him. Or if you say, uh, Rusty, and he says, my name's Joe, you know that you have somebody different. When we start talking about the distinctive marks of the church, there are features that are so plainly revealed in Scripture that you and I can say now we can identify the real church. You say, wow, are we going to be here all night? No, we're going to take the first four tonight and we're going to look at those. And Lord willing, next Sunday evening, we'll look at the last four. And these are not the only ways, but I gave you, for instance, several ways to recognize the little boy who was lost. Well, if you want to try to find the Lord's church and you start reading about it in the Bible, you start reading about its origin and its establishment. You read about its scriptural designation, what's it called. You read about the terms of entrance, how you get into it. And you read about the acts of worship. And so let's start exploring that. The true church began with Christ in Jerusalem in A.D. 33. Now, how do we know that? Brother Larry read to us just a few moments ago from Matthew chapter 16, verses 16 through 18. And I want to hit verse 18 again. He says, Also I say unto you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Will build my church. It's something in the future, not something past. Wasn't established during the days of John the Baptist. And yet when we keep on reading, by the time we get to Acts 2 and verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people of the Lord, it added to the church daily. Well, it wasn't there in Matthew 16. It is there in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. So if the church was established, its origin has to go all the way back to the day of Pentecost. What you can do if you start looking at the various churches around us and you start saying, well, when did this church begin? Well, it began in the early 1600s. Well, when did this church begin? Well, actually, this became a church when it followed, for instance, this man or that man, and it began in the 1700s, 1800s, 1900s. You see, if you're going to be a part of the genuine, true, real church, you've got to go all the way back to Pentecost. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11, For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. If it's a church built on anybody else, anything else other than Jesus, it's not his church. Some ignorantly assert that the church of Christ began with Alexander Campbell in the 1800s. Since I have been here, I know at least three times that there have been anonymous letters mailed to me that have a picture out of some sort of book, photocopy, that says that the Church of Christ was started by Alexander Campbell. Well, I want to take just a moment or two to address that because, you know, if somebody says something, that doesn't mean it's true. 
You have to actually examine the evidence. Let me tell you what you can verify yourself. The Campbells were Presbyterians, and they were in the countries of Ireland and Scotland. Thomas Campbell came to the United States in 1807. His son Alexander came in 1809. Alexander was baptized by a Baptist preacher in 1812 and published the little publications, not little, in fact it's huge, called the Christian Baptist from 1823 to 1830. Now you say, well, what's the importance of those dates? Well, the truth is, is that you can go to an area not far from here called Old Philadelphia. We know the congregation at Old Philadelphia was there in 1805 because they wrote a letter to brethren in Alabama in 1805. That's before Thomas and Alexander Campbell ever came to the United States. It's before they ever left the Presbyterian church to become Baptist. We know that Campbell published the publication all the way to 1830, and in 1830, the, the building that's at Old Philadelphia was there at that time. Makes it pretty clear that those who are asserting that are actually not telling the truth. Whether they know so or they only guess so, they're not telling the truth. When you start looking at the characteristics of the Lord's church, we don't go back to Campbell. We go all the way back to Jerusalem. We go all the way back to the church of the first century. Which brings us up to the scriptural designations. And there's several scriptural designations in the Bible. If you want to read through your Bible and you start saying, okay, what was the church called when you read about it in the Bible? Well, the first thing, it's simply called the church. And you go to Acts chapter 11, verse 22 and verse 26. The news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. Simply call the church in Jerusalem. Or if you go to Acts 11 and verse 26, and when he found him, he brought him, that is Barnabas found Paul, brought him to Antioch. And so for a whole year, they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were called Christians, or first called Christians at Antioch. The church comprised of Christians. They didn't have all these uh, hyphenated names. They didn't have all these man-made names. They simply were the church. It's also called the kingdom, the kingdom of God. In Acts 8 and verse 12, and they believed Philip as he preached things concerning the kingdom of God. And the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Colossians 1 and verse, 20, or verse 13, And he delivered us from the power of darkness and has conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love. So it's sometimes called the kingdom. It's occasionally called the church of the Lord. The American Standard Translation of Acts 20 verse 28 says, Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit hath made you bishops to feed the church of the Lord which he purchased with his own blood. Or it's called the church of God, 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 2, to the church of God which is in Corinth. Or it's called the churches of Christ. Romans 16 verse 16, greet one another with a holy kiss. The churches of Christ greet you. Sometimes it's called the house of God. 
where the house there means like a family. In 1 Timothy 3, verse 15, But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. Now, as I'm going to start looking at various religious groups, and I pass by them on the way here to assemble, and I start looking for names that are used in the Bible, many of them's names can't be found there. And some of those whose names may be found there may not be the ones described in the Bible. And you say, what do you mean by that? Usually if I'm sitting and having a Bible study with a couple and I keep using that photo of that 57 Chevrolet and I can say to them, there's a lot of cars have Chevrolet written on them. In fact, there may be one that's made in 2010, maybe one made in 2019. But there's only the uniqueness of one that is made in 1957. And sometimes it's called the household of faith. In Galatians 6 and verse 10, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, and especially those who are of the household of faith. We want to make sure that we use designations that are given by Scripture and are recognized as such. Now that leads me to the next part, the third part of our lesson, and that is terms of entrance. How do you get into the church of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? How is it that you enter the kingdom? When Jesus was meeting with Nicodemus, Jesus wanted to explain to him about the kingdom. In fact, he preached things concerning the kingdom of God. And we read, Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say say unto you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say unto you, Unless one is born of the water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. A man must be born of the water and of the Spirit. Being born of water has a reference to baptism. Being born again, born anew. The washing of regeneration, as Paul would write to Titus. What does this all involve? Well, number one, it involves faith. Here's where I have to avoid the temptation to want to use every passage in the Bible to prove the plan of salvation. We know Hebrews 11 and verse 6 says, But without faith it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and he is rewarder of those who diligently seek him. You go to John 1 and verse 12 and he says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. To those who believe in his name, he gave them the right to become. It qualifies you to become a child of God. It doesn't put you into Christ, it qualifies you. You have the right to become. Beyond that, one must repent. 
of sins. In Acts 17 and verse 30, the times of this ignorance God once overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. All men everywhere to repent. He commands that. Acts 26 and verse 20, but he declared to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent Turn to God and do works befitting repentance. When Paul preached, he would go out and he'd say, you've got to repent. You've got to repent. Everywhere you teach someone to become a child of God, they've got to change their lives. You can't keep living a sinful life and be a Christian. The repentance is the change of mind. Doing the works befitting repentance is when a person shows that they've repented by the way they live. And in Luke 13, verse 3, I've gone past it. But Jesus said, I tell you, no, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. And then from that, a man must confess. In Romans chapter 10, verse 10, for with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Confession unto salvation. Jesus had taught in Matthew 10, 32 and 33, that unless we will confess him before men, he will not confess us before our, his Father in heaven. We've got to be the kind of people willing to stand up and say, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And in fact, in Acts 8 and verse 37, Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. The answer of that demand. And then a person has to be baptized. In Acts 22 and verse 16, Ananias had came in and here's Saul. He's been praying. If there was ever a sinner's prayer, Paul prayed one, not the one that's being circulated among men. He was a man convicted of his sins, recognizing that he had sinned against the Christ. He had been persecuting the church. Ananias asked the question, Saul, Saul, why are you tearing? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. What are you waiting on? What is it that's, that's causing you to delay? He's going to be baptized and the, so many times as you're reading, immediately he and his were all baptized. When Peter and the other apostles preached that first gospel sermon on the day of Pentecost. And they had proven the fact that Jesus had raised from the dead. And that this same Jesus whom they had crucified, God had made him both Lord and Christ. It says they were cut to the heart, pricked in the heart. Said men and brethren, what shall we do? And here's the response of Peter in Acts 2 verse 38. Repent. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent and every one of you be baptized. He didn't say repent and let the head of the household be baptized. Every one of you be baptized. Now why? For the remission of sins. You see, that's why a person is baptized, so their sins can be washed away.
And when a person does those things, he has faith in Jesus Christ. He repents of his sins. He confesses his faith in Christ. And then he is baptized, Peter in Acts 2 verse 41, with many other words testified and exhorted them saying, be saved from this perverse generation. He's encouraging people to do that. We get to verse 47 and praising God and having favor with all the people. The Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. When you become a child of God, it's not because somebody votes you in. It's not because you put your hand on some television or radio and pray a sinner's prayer with the person there. It's when a person commits his life to doing what Jesus said that he is added to the church of our Lord. Now when you start thinking about acts of worship, worship is very important to God and it's very important among his people. It involves paying homage and praising the God of heaven. As I was participating in the singing just a few moments ago, I thought of how beautiful the sound of the singing was. But you know, the singing is not for me. The singing is for God. And what God heard, not only was the noise that comes forth out of our mouth, but the devotion that comes forth out of our hearts, you know, as the Bible says, singing, making melody in your heart to the Lord. Worship has not been left to the devices of man, but is prescribed by the Creator. In other words, it's this simple. For those of you men who do not know, Tuesday is Valentine's Day. No, not Tuesday, Thursday, I'm sorry about that. Well, I'm, go ahead and say Tuesday and that way you'll be ahead. Uh, but what are you going to get someone? What you want or what they want? And I will tell you, men, if you go to your wife and you bring her in a nice new rod and reel, you may find that you are not high on her list. She may actually be angry at you. Let me tell you when... It comes to our worship to God. It's not about me and it's not about you. It's about God the Father. And He's prescribed what He wants. Listen to John 4 verse 24. Jesus said the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers, get that, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. God is seeking people to worship him in spirit and truth. The spirit has to do with the spirit of man. My heart. What I am on the inside. And then the truth is his will. What he has revealed to us. God is looking for people to worship him like that. In Matthew 15, in verse 9, And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Jesus said, when people offer me what men want, He said, you know how I feel about that? That's vain worship. It doesn't do any good. I don't know if you've ever heard somebody say, well, I don't know if his prayer got far above his head or not. Do our praises, do our prayers 
Do our devotions make it to God? Only if they're as God has asked for them and desired them. Back in the Old Testament, Hosea reflected that in his letter. He said in chapter 5, verse 11, Ephraim is oppressed and broken in judgment because he willingly walked by a human precept. You see, Jeroboam had taught the children of Israel how he wanted them to worship. And it wasn't the worship that God had revealed. He had set up an idol in Dan and one in Bethel, and he had said, This is your God, O Israel. You know, we can just as easily change the God we worship as the way we worship and it being pleasing to him. In Acts 17, verse 29, Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or something shaped by art or man's devising. The God we serve is not one that needs what you and I have to offer of our physical selves, but of our spiritual selves. Now, when you look for the prescribed worship, you must observe that it, first of all, must have been taught explicitly by the Christ or one of his apostles. Did the Lord say what he wanted? Or the authorized men that he chose himself, those apostles, you remember what he told them in John 16, verse 13, John 14, verse 26, he said, I'm going to send you another, even the Holy Spirit, who will guide you into all truth. In other words, they were going to be given the, the direction. Was it practiced by the early church under the guidance of an apostle or another inspired writer? When you and I read our Bibles, do we read about people offering worship that is acceptable to God? We have to make sure that our worship is guided by the New Testament. We don't live under the Old Testament. That law was brought to an end. Well, if you think about it, you, what you come away with is five items that were a part of that early New Testament worship. Ephesians 5.19 and Colossians 3.16 are very plain, very simple. They're, they're parallels, if you will. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and with grace in your hearts to the Lord. The kind of people who sing, nothing said about playing an instrument. We must do what God has said to Praying. 1 Timothy 2, verse 8, he says, I desire therefore that the men pray in every place, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. The men, males. You know, you can go to a lot of churches and some of them have women preachers. Paul will go on to make it clear that not only did I want the men to preach, he said, but I permit all women to teach and have authority over man, but to be in quietness. You can go to giving. 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 and 2. As I gave order to the churches of Galatia, so also you must do. And upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by something, lay something up in store, that there be no gatherings or collections made when I come. It's a first day of the week giving. According to 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 7, man's not to give grudgingly or necessity because God loves a cheerful giver. 
what you and I give to God on the first day of the week ought to be because we love Him, we care for Him, and we want to further His cause. Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning with verse 20, talks about the coming together of the church in one place. About verse 23, he begins to say, I delivered to you that which I also received from the Lord, that on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and he gave thanks. And he goes on to explain, after supper, he took the cup. And Paul explains that this was done in remembrance of him. And when we put together with that, Acts chapter 20 and verse 7, and upon the first day of the week when the disciples were gathered together to break bread, we understand that Every first day of the week, we assemble together and we partake of the Lord's Supper. In Acts 2, verse 42, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayers. What we understand from looking at these acts of worship is the fact that God's worship did not consist of some sort of interpretive dance. It did not include a stand-up comedian act. It did not include a, a diversion into worldly things. No, it was about God. You see, singing, you're singing praises to Him. Praying, you're asking for God's blessings as well as the giving of thanks. In giving, you are showing that you are giving to God. And then the Lord's Supper is to remember Jesus' body and blood that he shed upon the cross and teaching involves the communicating of God's will to men. What about those who choose their own pattern of worship? That's not Christ's church. You remember Romans 8 verse 9? Well, you're not in the flesh but in the spirit if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his You've not embraced what the Spirit has revealed. You're not the Lord's. And here's the truth. There are many churches, many groups that are claiming to be from the Lord. And yet they don't possess the distinct characteristics that are described in the New Testament. I'm looking for the real one. I'm looking for the true church. Do not accept a cheap imitation Insist on the real thing because only the real church can take you to heaven. And I want to encourage you to be obedient to the gospel tonight. I think you've heard enough that is a part of scripture that if you want to become a Christian tonight, that you can do so. you still got room to grow. you still got a lot that's it's in the scriptures and you'll always be growing for the rest of your life. But why not tonight? Make the start. We're going to sing the song, Just As I Am. And if you want to become a Christian tonight, please do so. If you're a Christian you want to come back home, let's pray together. If you need to come, please do so as we stand and sing.